0: Mental Podcast is a show dedicated to individuals and mental health professionals, providing support, information, and some candid conversation along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Michelle and Seth. Welcome to another episode of Mental Podcast. As part of our series for the month of April, we've been focused on child abuse. Michelle and I have really made efforts at providing, like, you know, a thorough evaluation of the different types of child abuse and its subsequent impact. As we wrap up this series, I wanted to hear specifically from someone in the field, someone who's actually been working with Children's Division and has been an investigator. Guess guest that I'm about to introduce today, her name is Ann Stelter. And yeah, tell me, tell us a little bit about yourself, Anne. Well, I used to work for Children's Division for
1: close to 15 years Out of those 15 years, 13 of them or so were child abuse and neglect investigations. I have my master's degree in social work, and I am a licensed master's social worker, and I'm working on getting my clinical license at this time. I did investigations from the time I graduated, or worked for children's division from the time I graduated with my bachelor's degree and ended up um, resigning at the end of 2012. For From 2004 till 2012, I worked for what was called the out-of-home investigation unit of child abuse and neglect investigations and that was a specialized unit that was based out of Jeff City. What this unit Consisted of investigating was allegations of child abuse and neglect that dealt with out of the home as the alleged perpetrators, meaning that these children were allegedly abused or neglected in schools, in daycares, licensed daycares. Un- unlicensed home day cares, foster homes, residential facilities that are licensed by the state. We also tried to investigate unlicensed residential facilities within the state. Juvenile detention, even the childhood psyched hospitals, we would have investigations there. And in some of rare instances, we also had investigations of abuse or neglect inside of the hospitals. That worked with children, so that is. And then I did that as I said up until 2012, and then I started working current and work still currently working as a mobile outreach, crisis counselor, and I now deal with majority of mental health and substance abuse and, and some child abuse, but majority I deal with the mental health now.
0: It sounds like, though, when you were working for Children's Division, you were really involved in multiple areas of abuse and neglect. I mean, you just listed an entire variety of different locations, and I'm assuming uh, different impacts based upon that. But why, why the change? I don't know if I can ask that, but why the change from Children's Division to... Mobile outreach services, focusing on the mental health side of the business, the of the business of the mental health world, if you will.
1: Well, that is a kind of a long story, but I started working for the company I'm currently working for since 2007 as a part time job, as long as on as well as doing investigations for the state. And when I resigned in 2012, I just decided. I, you know, I was in panic mode because I didn't think it through what I was going to do. I had just couldn't do investigations anymore at that point. Not that I. It had to do with I loved investigations, and you know has, you know how the politics go, and when, when you work for the state. But anyway, so I just decided to. I was able to pick up shit, you know, hours doing mobile outreach, clinic, you know, crisis counseling. And that's, I've learned that that's what I really love doing at this time. I still love investigations. I wish I could still do that, but I still love doing working with the mental health. So I kind of get torn in between the two of them. And I feel like my investigation experience and how much I, still love doing investigations that still plays a role in what I do working for the company I work for now.
0: Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that Michelle and I have mentioned in prior episodes is just how prevalent child abuse and neglect are and how it really has no, you know, it's its not limited to one population, Right. It it knows no race, gender, age, socioeconomic status. Uh, It it happens, mental health capacity. It it happens to everyone. I mean, it it can happen in any environment. Uh, And and it sounds like, I mean, I would imagine working in that role would come with quite a bit of stress and maybe even a sense of responsibility that may have been overwhelming at times. Would you agree with that? I mean, I don't know. I haven't worked in it, but I can imagine it.
1: I think if I would have stayed in the unit where I investigated parents of abusing their child, I think I would have not... I don't know if I would have been able to make it in doing that as long as I did, but working in the unit that I do investigating schools and foster homes and daycares and so on and so forth we would see a lot of more of revenge in those investigations over actual real child abuse that you would see when you were doing against the natural fa- family members or the caretakers that were the guardians of the child i think that would have caused more PTSD to me than doing what I did caused to me because I think it is more intense when it's because you're seeing I think more I would think you would see more abuse actual abuse and neglect in those circumstances over what I saw in my unit but the things that I did witness is still will always play a role in who I am today.
0: And I want to start talking about circumstances that you came across to, because one of the things Michelle and I have tried to illustrate is in looking at the different forms, even kind of looking at the whys behind, like what circumstances are taking place that lead there. But, but, but before I get there, I have one more question. Why children's division? Why did you choose that career path and I know you're not in the job now. I, I understand that. But what is it that, because I think it's important for us to talk about that, because there's a lot of prejudice. There's a lot of judgment towards social workers and professionals in this field that are working in that environment right? There's a lot of uh, negative feedback that gets shared um, and judgments cast. And so going into that is a pretty bold move as a first career choice. I will tell you quite honestly, that was at the very last of my career options when I graduated with my master's degree. So I'm curious what led you there? And then we'll start talking about your different experiences.
1: Well, the funny story is how I ended up at Children's Division was when I was in my senior year of social work, getting my bachelor's in social work and was getting ready to start my practicum. There at UMSL, there was a program that provided the opportunity for social workers to do their practicum with the state. You had to go through an interview process with the state you had to go you, it was a it was a lengthy process but the benefit of doing my practicum with the state and and i got placed in the foster care unit in st louis county where i lived at benefits of doing my practicum with the state was that i was guaranteed, two things. I was paid $800 a month just to do my practicum Which and it was is unheard of uh, for practicum experiences. Exactly. And I was a single mother. Let me just add to you all to that. I was a single mother and I had no contact with the my son's father, so I was doing it all on my own with the support of my mother. So, being paid $800 a month to do my practicum and The second bonus was I was guaranteed a job with the state upon graduation. The downfall was I might not get placed in the office of my choice, which at that time was the only office they had in the county was on page. As a single mother, the idea of, A, getting paid to do my practicum, $800 a month was a lot because I had been living on, I'm not ashamed to admit, but at that time it was called AFDC, which is now called TANF, which is the state assistance. I was involved in the Futures Program, which helped pay for my son's daycare while I went to school. And so I was able to, and I got food stamps that I used to help my mother buy food for me and my son. And... To be able to graduate with my bachelor's in May with all these other social workers and looking for a job. The idea of a guaranteed job with the state upon graduation and having $800 a month for tax-free stipend for doing this program. And you had to give the state one-year commitment. I always had in my head I was leaving after five years. I was like, I'm going to do my five years because that means I'm vested Mm -hmm. and I'll get a little bit of retirement and then I'm gone. But I, I fell in love with what Children's Division did. I understood the mission of Children's Division. I was one of those workers at the beginning of my career with Children's Division. I did foster care work. As my practicum, as a practicum, and I got hired into that same unit, so I just continued my caseload and did foster care for a year before I transitioned into assessments and investigations, and then I transferred to the out of home investigation unit. But doing my job, I loved it. I understood. I wasn't one of those that wanted to take kids away. I advocated for parents to. Get their kids back, but I was darn sure. Sorry, I was about to curse. There, okay. (laughs) I was damn sure that I was going to protect those babies. I don't care. I that was my main job, and I fell in love with it. I did not. I was a worker. I did not. I advocated. I did everything I could because I loved it, and I loved foster care, and I loved investigations. Honestly, I left because of the politics. They, so, but again, that's a long story. But I'm, I loved working for, I loved doing what we did for the state, and I hate that the state has a bad reputation. But then there are workers that do not do what I, you know, didn't go over and beyond, did what they needed to do. So it gives the state a bad rep. But honestly, Children's Division does. Want to help the does want to help the children, you know, and that's or and that's my that was my mission. Where I was working with Children's Division was to protect my babies and do what was best for my
0: babies. I'm hearing that this was very much worthwhile.
1: It was very worthwhile. The investigator in me, I think, had plays a role in my ability to help people who are in crisis think it all falls hand in hand doing investigations we didn't really focus I didn't use clinical skill clinical mental health skills investigations it was more looking proving finding out is there really abuse and neglect you know without that can be probable cause or Whatever it's called now, but my you know, that is what we did. We did not look at the mental health issue. Now I look at, at all the mental health issues, and I can look back and see now, as being so submerged in the mental health now, I can see things that I didn't see as an investigator that probably there was a lot of mental health that I was missing, but that wasn't my goal. My goal was to do what was the best for those babies. Investigations consist of a lot of work, you know, we're, but in our unit, we had to have our investigations done, completed within a 30-day 30 time, 30 time frame. That was doable, but over the years, the more steps that they kept adding into our investigations and stuff that they wanted us to do was taking away the time from Actually, doing a good and a thorough thorough investigations, I felt like it was getting to the point that I was becoming a more of a secretary than being able to actually care and really investigate the child abuse. There was just it was just getting too many steps, too many rules, regulations that I just felt like I I lost the passion for being able to investigate because I dreaded all the added steps that i was going to have to do that was a waste of time that was stupid that didn't need to be done but you know again that's why i say it's politics policy stuff that's above my pay grade so i just i lost the passion for it at that point
0: in everything that we've talked about in this series it's primarily been educational based but now I want to hear from someone who's actually worked in the field. And of course, we are licensed clinicians, and so therefore we have to adhere, well, not e- regardless of whether we're a licensed clinician or not, as a mental health professional in the field, we have to care about HIPAA and confidentiality and things of that nature. So I want to mention some stories, some actual experiences that you've had while well, at the same time, respecting the identities and people that you have come across. But I mean, we even have a few stories in regards to situations around childhood abuse and neglect. But let me kind of turn this over to you and ask for some of the different types of scenarios and situations that you would come into. You've already mentioned several different avenues, right, in which you might engage with people. But what are some of the stories?
1: One story that I will never forget to this day was I was investigating a school bus, allegations of abuse. The allegation, the whole incident was between a child who was unable to speak, had severe mental disabilities, was nonverbal. And it was regarding an adult on the bus. The whole incident was videotaped by the bus. Cameras that are on the bus. And I was able to actually view the video. I witnessed this adult hit this child who was sitting in his seat the whole bus ride. She hit him with several different types of objects.
0: When you say adult... On a school bus. Are we talking about the bus driver? Are we talking about a teacher? Are we talking about a chaperone? What? I don't understand how an adult is on a bus. Other than it's the bus driver. Which, how could he be doing that if he was driving the bus?
1: It was a bus aide. So somebody that was employed by the school bus. This individual... Mm. On video, hit this chi- nonverbal child multiple times. And when I say multiple, we counted. We're talking 30 plus times. She hit this child. Caught on video with multiple items. He was not doing anything the entire time to be. He was not doing anything. He had nothing. He was doing nothing at all this entire time. She's hitting him. There were breaks in between the hits, but it, it was all caught on video. The it, just thinking about it, I'm pa- sorry for pausing because I'm just still in shock, reliving this in my head again after so many years. But she, you know, and I'm going to say when I say thirty plus, I'm still being generous with that amount. But because this child did not receive any visible bruises from this being hit multiple, multiple times because he did not have one single mark, I was not able to find child abuse against this adult. Seth's over here looking shocked.
0: Okay, so we have to I have to I yeah, I've got about 1500 questions and also I want to bring up a very important clarification. And that is is that every individual state in the United States of America define child abuse differently and have different standards that are required in order for it to be classified as abuse. And so I just want to mention that uh, Ann and I are both speaking, we both live here in the state of Missouri, and so therefore we are going by Missouri state standards, which from my understanding, and and again, Ann is the expert here, but from my understanding, Missouri expectations Require that a scar or mark be or injury be left in order for it to be classified as abuse, regardless of what other actions occurred on the incident. Is that correct?
1: That is 100% correct. And we are only talking about the state of Missouri. I do not know anything about child abuse laws and every state has different laws and different rules and but so we're just talking about Missouri but in the state of Missouri if you administer discipline or uh, and that does not result in a mark or an injury or a bruise some form of physical evidence we cannot consider it child abuse
0: and also this is just a total side note But in my current job, working for a company that serves all states and even some overseas contracts, we have to, in order before we even file, uh, we have to go through a checklist to make sure it meets certain standards for that specific state. Specifically, since I'm in Missouri and I would hotline anything and other states, you definitely can't do that. And, and again, Ann, I'm sorry for my questions here. But when you say that you mentioned that the child didn't do anything while these were happening, but what triggered it? Because something had to have happened in order for an aide to do that, I would think.
1: And Seth, that is what was the saddest thing was there was nothing this child did to cause this behavior, this reaction. Nothing. She just started doing it out of the freaking blue. I mean, I was just like astounded. Astounded. I mean, I just could not believe it. And I was so upset that I could not find child abuse on her. However, I wasn't able to find child abuse. But a side note is that every investigation that we did with the home investigation unit we were always involving the police. So the police were involved in this. I can't speak outside of my investigation, but I can tell you that the police were involved with this incident. So at least I can say that part, but there was no child abuse findings against this
0: adult. So rather than going with the child abuse route, they probably went with the physical assault route would be my guess, but we'll never know. And we're not here to report that news. Shocking. And I'm also curious, I'm assuming that there were other kids on the bus during this incident?
1: There were, if I remember correctly, there were other kids, but I, they were all special needs kids on this bus. So that's all I can remember.
0: Out of curiosity, do we know if any of those children were traumatized by seeing this incident?
1: no that that's beyond the scope of the our investigations when we investigate we just are focusing on that child and that incident we're not unfortunately we don't look into anything else
0: no i i i realize that i just wanted to mention it because it bothers me
1: and now working for the company I work for now working in the mental health, that's what I see is, I see kids who have witnessed trauma experiences against something, you know, not that didn't involve them personally, but they experienced it or witnessed it. I'm seeing that from a mental health profession now, but as an investigator, no, we focus straightly on the investigation part.
0: I think you have more stories
1: Let's see another story this is this is a neglect story that as an investigator i will tell you that we do become cynical when we are reading our paperwork before we head out or not we now i'm not i can't characterize uh, everyone i can say that i i over the years became cynical about, you know, the reports when I was reading them. But however, I can say that in all honesty, I never let my cynicalism judge or cloud my judgment when I was actually out doing a child abuse investigation. But sometimes when you read the reports, you're like, okay, okay. You know, depending on the child's age, depending on the allegations, depending on who the reporter is, sometimes you're thinking, okay, this is a bunch of BS, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then when, but again, I never let that cloud my judgment. So this was one of my very, one of my very last cases, I think, or close to one of my last cases with Children's Division, summertime, I think it was, of 2012, I got a foster home report, and the kid was a high school kid. He lived in the, his foster father was his actual grandfather, so we considered it a kinship foster home. So again, because I worked for the unit in St. Louis County and St. Louis City and St. Charles County's foster homes and Uh, you know, other schools and daycares. Um, I was, you know, called upon to investigate this allegation that this teenage boy from the city was claiming that his foster dad, who was actually his grandfather, was drunk and pulled a gun on him before school. And when the kid got to school, he told the school reporter... And so I was called out to investigate this. I'm thinking to myself, okay, what happened between kid and grandpa? He was, you know, this is summer school. This kid is being made to go to school during summer school. He's a teenager. What happened between him and grandpa that got him, you know, pissed off at grandpa that he's, you know, making up allegations that Grandpa's drunk and, you know, pulling guns on him first thing in the morning during a school day. Come on now, that's what I'm thinking in my head. But, you know, I get down to the school because we always try to see our victim, which is our little child, our little baby, outside of the home if possible in an environment where they'll feel more comfortable to talk to us. So I went to go see him um, at his school and I, he told me that, you know, Grandpa was drunk, and he was walking down the stairs because they lived, like, on the upstairs unit, and they, he said they, that Grandpa, while he was walking down the stairs and walking outside to leave for the school bus, Grandpa pulled his gun out on him. I was like, well, damn, okay. So, you know, I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go see Grandpa. So I go see Grandpa, and, you know, upon entering the backyard where we you had to park, there was lots of beer cans all over the place. This is, you know, however, it's a two-family flat. I can't tell you, you know, two families share this backyard, so I can't say whose beer it is. I don't know who lives in the home. It's not against the law to drink, you know, so that's okay. So I grandpa knows i'm coming grandpa doesn't know the allegations but grandpa knows i'm coming and i will let you know that in investigations the police don't accompany investigators to hotlines unless we request their presence We don't request the presence on them unless they involve, you know, we feel our safety is at risk, such as guns, weapons, you know, there's been reports of guns, weapons, things that make you unsafe. Or if the allegations have to deal with, you know, something that you're going to need the police there to remove the child because you already can tell that the child's going to need to be removed because there's supposedly injuries Um, So the police only accompany us on, you know, really major investigations on all these other ones that we do. We would go by ourselves. So grandpa knew I was coming. Again, I see all the beer cans. You know, again, I can't and I'm not judging, you know, to each its own. People are grown. I don't care as long as you weren't drunk and you didn't pull a gun. You know, if you weren't drunk first thing in the morning and you didn't pull your gun out on your grandson, that's what I'm here to see. (laughs) <laughs> so I get upstairs. Grandpa seemed drunk to me when I got there. And this is still early because it was an emergency report. It came in early that morning. It started at 8. It came in right around 8 in the morning. It was coded emergency. So that means I had to get on the ball and get rolling on it. So I hurried up, got saw the kids. So we're talking, this is still early, like 12, maybe before you're on noontime. Grandpa seems drunk to me. I'm like, okay, maybe he was drunk this morning. So then I ask Grandpa about, you know, I'm saying I'd tell him the allegations that his grandson is making allegations that he pulled a gun out on on him this morning. While I'm talking to Grandpa for those few minutes, I'm kind of thinking maybe Grandpa isn't drunk. Grandpa, I think, had a stroke and has effects of a stroke. But he also might be drinking along with the stroke. I can't tell. Because he definitely had characteristics that looked like he had had a stroke. And he was an elderly man. But I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't some alcohol still involved. So I'm talking to Grandpa about you know, the, him having a, pulling a gun on his grandson. And he tells me, hold on a minute. He leaves the room. I had let my guard down at this point. Shouldn't have. Grandpa comes out of the down the hallway back into the room and points a gun at me. Oh. <sighs> oh. Now, in all my years, I've never had a gun pointed at me. I've had pit bulls, like, stuck, you know, sicked on me. I've had things thrown in my car. I've had my car vandalized. I've been chased by pit bulls. I've been called names. I've been threatened. But I've never actually had a gun pulled out on me. So, he pulled the gun out on me and then he hand, then he turns it kind of sideways and I'm like, can I, and I'm casually like, and he's not threatening me, but he has the gun pointed at me and I'm just like, and he's kind of like, yeah, you talking about this gun? And I'm like, okay, sir, can I please have the gun? So he hands me the gun and I dismantle the gun. I don't know how I dismantle the gun because I have never in my life ever handed Handled a gun but somehow i dismantled this gun while i'm sitting here talking to this man and i just leave the leave it dismantled right next to me and he sits down across from me and we're talking and i told him the allegations and he told me yeah he did pull the gun out on his grandson this morning because him and his grandson were going at it he felt threatened by his grandson and because he of his disability is what his side of the story was. So, But long story short, grandbaby didn't ever go back to grandpa's house or he left. At that night, he didn't go home. I don't know what happened because I just called his caseworker who made arrangements to pick him up from school. And he wasn't going back to grandpa's house. But that was one of my neglect hotlines that I had that I can recall that was, one I didn't think was going to be real, and it turned out to be a big ordeal—something I had never experienced, and something that, as again, I might be cynical from over the years on certain things, but I never let it cloud, cloud my judgment.
0: I would think that that story is kind of <laughs> what would make this job worth it.
1: I mean, yeah, it was. I I loved. I'm telling you, I love investigations. I mean, there was. <laughs> Even though I don't do investigations now, I wish I could still do investigations and I still do a little bit of unofficial investigations doing what I do now. I mean, when we prior to COVID with our with the mobile outreach crisis counseling that I do, we would go out. They would send me out when they would know that there might be some questions about some child abuse. They would always try to have me do the mobile outreach crisis counseling, or my coworkers would always call do and still call and ask me child abuse and neglect questions because I do have that expertise of doing investigations for so long. I mean, I've had every type of investigation you can think of from, you know, that you would not think would happen in a school or a daycare or a foster home or a residential facility. I mean, everything that I've actually found child abuse and neglect is like, just astound me of what, really happens in schools and daycares and all the facilities and foster homes i will admit that i would not put my daughter in a daycare in st louis county st louis county st louis city or st charles county because i had investigated every dying daycare i'm not saying i found allegations of i never and i'm not saying i found abuse or neglect in every daycare But I'm saying I've spent a lot of times in daycares in the St. Louis city, and county, in St. Charles County, that I saw enough that made me have red flags of I did not want to put my daughter in a daycare. And my mother actually retired and took care of my daughter for me when she was born so I could go back to investigations. So that is one thing that investigations did do to me is... How it affected my personal
0: life. Well, I mean, I think it it all runs together. I mean, uh, so there's two more stories I want to get. I want to get one more story. And then I want us together to share a story that we encountered together. But do you got one more for me? That's been significant, kind of stands out from the years. Other than ours.
1: So, this is a foster home report. Um, and I found, I did find abuse on the foster mother. However, foster mom took it back to the CAN review board, which is a panel that you can, appeal if, if a child abuse finding, a child abuse and neglect finding is found on you, you can appeal it through the Child Abuse and Neglect Review Board, and it can be overturned. So this was overturned for abuse, child abuse, but this was a foster child and a a foster mom. I'm talking about the foster child was five years old. If people know child development, they know that five-year-olds cannot tell a lie and be consistent in their lie. A lie will always change with a five-year-old. But a five-year-old, when they tell the truth, the story does not change. Because they don't, they're not lying. But if they lie, it they will not remember the lie and it will change. It's not consistent. So I got a report of a five-year-old who was saying that her foster mother had hit, hit her with an object and it left a mark. Unfortunate, and it was marked as an emergency. However, unfortunately, I was out of town for the day doing a mandatory training. And so we had to. sure safety a different way. So I had another co-worker assure safety for me and saw the kid, got the kid so the child was not going to go back to that foster parent for the night before I could come out and investigate. And then the caseworker, her foster care caseworker had seen her too, but didn't talk to her anything because they were waiting for the investigation. So the next morning I went and talked to the little girl. The little girl's story was very consistent with me. The little girl, little girl, had told the daycare worker or somebody else, and her story was consistent with the the first person she had talked to. I'm sorry, it was her case manager who picked her up, and the case manager asked her, but didn't go into details, but asked her about what happened. So I have this case worker's statement. I then go out and see the little girl the next morning, where she's placed at or back at the daycare. Her story is consistent with what she had told the day before to her caseworker. I mean, it was, exa- I mean, there was a few little different things, but they weren't anything that were, you could tell the little girl was telling the truth. She was hit for what reason. She was hit was with, with what, where, time, place of the house, with the object. It was all consistent. I then left the daycare, went to the police station, talked to the police station there, detective there. Or no, I had called the police department before I left the daycare, after I talked to the little girl and informed the police. So then the police wanted me to come up to the station, give them a full report. We went back to the daycare, woke the baby up from her nap. The police then asked her the same questions and more. Again, her story does not change. The police have her draw a picture of the object. What the little girl drew was exactly what she explained to me. So again, she's consistent with all these these different people.
0: Well, that is sounding clear-cut and dry.
1: It gets better. We take her to get a forensic interview. Again, the story stays consistent. I mean, the story just never changed over a period of over a week of being talked to by multiple different people.
0: Can I throw out a prediction? The story remains the same until she gets in court and all of a sudden changes. Am I anywhere close? No. Okay, good. I'm happy I'm happy about that. So tell me, finish this off.
1: Unfortunately, what you're implying is true. But when a after you would find child abuse or neglect on a person, and they take that to the CAN review board, the child doesn't speak. All it is, is me or the, or the investigator, they have my report, the whole board has my report, because we have to write a very detailed, long report, right. all, this, you know, I, all the, you know, all the, evidence was included you know everything from me from the police from the hospital from you know from everybody but the only people in front of this board is me my, my supervisor and the um, alleged perpetrators what we called them and if they hire an attorney or not so that's who they hear they hear my story and they hear the alleged perpetrator story you know i have to give him, them a synopsis of what you know my no they asked me no i'm sorry they would ask me questions regarding my report that they had questions on and then they would give the alleged perp or and their attorney you know and or their attorney a certain amount of minutes to tell their side of the story and any, answer any questions the board has for them and then the board will review it and make their decision, and the board overturned it. So the alleged, the alleged perpetrator got her record clean, and so they, basically the board said that the little five-year-old was lying, and in my opinion, that five-year-old was not lying. It's a five-year-old cannot continuously state, state the same story to multiple people multiple times on multiple do- days and the story does not change so and sh- and she had injuries along with it that matched the item that she says she was hit with
0: when we are talking about these types of issues it's hard to call things like this is a win or this isn't a win when in fact we're deal i mean we- <laughs> it's a lose from the get-go Um, but I I enjoyed hearing different stories that, that kind of highlighted those different outcomes and that this is a hard job. And um, we have kids that are desperately in need and sometimes our system works and it helps. And sometimes it doesn't. And to wrap out this episode, now, this isn't a true CPS investigation uh, into Anne's life. Rather, I would like to share a story that, that uh, Anne and I have that resulted in a CPS report. The reason that I have Ann's Delta on this show, one, is because I think that she is one of the most gifted talented and experienced mental health professionals in the eastern region of Missouri. I love her and we're good friends and we work for two different agencies right now. And yet our connection has remained throughout it all. Anyhow, we were working for two different companies and we still scheduled a trip to the Bahamas, ladies and gentlemen. And this was pre-COVID, mind you. So you have Gay Seth on a cruise to the Bahamas with Ann Stelter and one of our other good friends. And it was one of the best times of my life. Like stories that I will never forget. However, I am on this trip with two counselors and social workers. I mean, I'm on I'm on this trip with mental health professionals, but that didn't stop us at all from really living life to its fullest. And so, we had a great vacation. It was it was wonderful. We were tired. We were ready to get home. Some of us wanted to get home for different reasons, but we very much all wanted to get home and so we're flying on a plane was it orlando to st louis so we had yeah so we were in orlando we got on this plane we're flying to st louis and i think i'm in the middle seat if i remember if i remember correctly and in the middle seat i'm just you know I don't know if you guys have caught on to me at all, but I'm just reading a book or, or something like that. I'm doing something where I'm not paying attention as to what is going on around me. However, the person to my right and the person to my left are both kind of nod- nudging me, kind of saying, hey, there is something not right. And it is with that, I'm going to hand this on over to Ann.
1: This is a story that I will never, ever forget. I mean, it just astounds me. I'm not going to go into all the details because it would take forever, and I don't remember everything, but that will give the good, good juicy details, but all the other at the end might be a little, you know, just a little more synopsis. So, we're on this plane, like Seth says. Now, we are in the back of this plane. The very back. The very back of this plane. It is a packed, full plane. It is coming, going from Orlando to St. Louis. So, you know everybody. And, oh, let me just tell you, it's the middle of the winter. We had just had a bad snowstorm. We almost missed our... trip because our plane got delayed a whole day because of a snowstorm and if we had not gone on our plane which was the very first flight out of Lambert on that day if we were not on the plane on the tarmac we would have missed our flight
0: the airport caught on fire
1: the we would have missed our flight we would have missed our cruise because they had to shut the whole Airport down for hours because as we're on the tarmac, a fire has broken out in Terminal One of Lambert Airport. <laughs> so we were just like, I just was ready to get on this cruise ship. Okay, so you know you got to add this this adrenaline that's going on this whole cruise to then to this airplane ride home. Okay, so we, as I said, kicked it on this cruise to the bahamas and we get on this airplane and we are on a late flight that lands in st louis late again it's a packed plane everyone's coming from orlando you know everyone's you know we're coming back to a snowstorm you know we're coming back to snow after we've been in orlando and you know other places like the bahamas so you know you're dressed for winter because it's january we're on this plane, oh, and the plane is full, but we are not leaving because there's a one pass, a group of a passenger that is waiting to board the plane. So we're all getting a little antsy because you know we're waiting for this passenger. So this lady comes walking into the plane to the very back. Oh, and she comes in through the back. If I'm not, I don't remember, but anyway, she comes in onto the plane, stumbling down the. Isle of the plane with a little girl now this is the middle of the winter mom's dressed appropriately in winter clothes one little girl i can't remember the age is dressed appropriately to coming to st louis from florida mom is holding a pretty newborn baby i don't know maybe six i would say no more than six months old if i'm not mistaken maybe a few months older maybe not but hey, a, baby. but a baby and you know around six months old. So this baby is mom is walk, stumbling down the aisle to the back of the plane and she is sitting on the left side of the plane we're sitting on the right side she's and she's in the row of in front of us. So I am against. I'm sitting at the in the seat at the window, so I have a perfect view of Mom and everything that's going on in the seat. So, but one thing that made me stop doing what I was doing and start paying attention to what was going on was this baby is on the coming onto the, this plane crying. I mean, like crying, and that made me look up and. This baby is not being carried by its mother, but is being carried by an uh, flight, you know, uh, airline uh, personnel person, you know, person that works for the airline. I'm like, what the hell? I've never in my life seen, I've never seen somebody from the airline carrying somebody else's baby down the aisle of an airplane. Okay, never in my life, and I fly. All the time. Or I used to prior to COVID. So for me to see this. I'm like okay. This isn't right. So all of a my little red flags. Just start flying up. And they f- were up the whole flight. So a red flag. Baby screaming. Being carried in by an airline personnel. Mom stumbling down the damn aisle. And I'm like what the fuck. So then the. Person, Mom gets a girl in the seat and mom sits down and she gets the baby. Baby is still screaming. We finally get, baby, we're finally leaving the airport. We're taking off. At one point after they turn off the seatbelt sign, I think, the mom puts this baby on the floor. Now we're talking about a baby. Hold on.
0: I've been trying to get this mic for like three minutes, but I was just about to say, if you think you've heard enough, just wait. Also, there is nothing more, I, I honestly don't know the proper adjective, but to sit next to someone, this is why I love my mental health community, sitting next to someone like Ann Stelter, whose red flags are just going off, because Anne is noting I feel as if she's got a piece of paper down and she's noting all of this because she knows what to look for. But if you think you've heard enough, just hold on, keep going.
1: So, sometime as again during mid-flight, she puts this screaming baby on the floor of the airplane while we're moving. I'm like, "What the fuck?" Now, not only does she do that, she lays the baby, she lay okay, it's so not only she lays the baby on the floor of a moving airplane, she puts the baby on the seat, lays the baby on the seat. Baby is so crying, screaming. Now, sometime from the beginning of this flight to the end of the flight, I have to add that this lady is sitting in her seat, nodding off on and off throughout the flight, and makes now we're on a flight from Orlando to St. Louis. If you all know this flight, it only takes a minimum of 2 hours and 20 minutes from takeoff to landing. It's a 2 hour and 20 minute flight, okay? This lady got up and used the bathroom, because remember, we're in the back of the plane. Ain't no reason this lady gets up not once, but goes to the bathroom twice during this flight. What the hell? Who goes to the bathroom two times on a two hour and 20 minute flight. Now granted, at this point, I'm not sure if she's holding her baby at this point because sometime during the flight, this screaming baby is finally, the mother allows this nice lady that's sitting behind her take the baby.
0: This is something that I specifically recall seeing because this lady across the aisle sees how much difficulty that this mother is having specifically giving given that she keeps getting up and leaving her child not not in a fashion not being taken care of so this lady offers to help this is what sent off my alarm flags okay because this baby was sitting in the seat as long as that mother was present that baby was crying But when this stranger, this individual who has never interacted with this child before is allowed to hold this baby, all of a sudden, the baby stops crying.
1: Oh, exactly. The baby stops crying and goes to sleep in this lady's arms. So finally, there's some peace on this plane. So I oh and the and I had so many times wanted to I kept saying to Seth, I want to go this baby I want to get up and get this baby, but the girl and I'm gonna have to say that the mother was a girl she was not a you know she was I would say young I'm I would say early twenties at the most very early twenties but I could be wrong but she knew I was watching her because I, I I'm very I'm. I, I'm not very subtle when I'm seeing shit that I'm like, oh my God. Because now, granted you all, I just, I'm on my way home in January to freezing cold weather from coming back from the Bahamas.
0: With Seth, which means that she had the very best time of her life, correct?
1: Oh yes, it was the best time. So, you know, you've got to realize that now I'm... I'm all hyped, and I'm starting to get pissy because my vacation is now coming down with a bang. So this baby falls asleep in this stranger's arms, and I'm just like, and I had been saying this, I want to get this baby, but this mom knew I was watching her. So I'm trying to stop making contact with you know eye contact and making her know that I'm watching her. I tried to ignore her. and since the baby was in the stranger's arms that was sitting across from us so I could see around Seth and the other person we were with. I could see the baby in this woman's arms. Now this woman did not give her a bottle, she did not give her a pacifier. She just held the baby and the baby went to sleep. So you know this and I know at times while the baby was being held the mom got up and went to the bathroom and came back and started nodding off again. I mean to me she was shooting up drugs, but I, I don't know because I, I wasn't in the bathroom, but something wasn't right with this female. So we're getting ready to land and the baby's still in the moms the stranger the stranger's arms asleep. But we're starting to get close to St. Louis, and I'm just like, what the fuck? I, oh, and let me just tell you, you all, I meant to tell you guys this in the very beginning. The baby was dressed in a onesie-type outfit, okay? I'm talking sleeveless. It went, it covered, it stopped right, it had this crunchy, you know, elastic at the bottom of the diaper area. Bare legs, no socks on, no coat. Just a blanket and not even a big thick, no coat, no nothing. This baby should have had on clothes. So, you know, this was another red flag for me right off jump because I remember I said mom and the other little girl were dressed normal or they were dressed appropriate. So that was another red flag was the baby was dressed very inappropriate to go from Orlando to St. Louis in January in the middle of a winter storm. So... Right before, as we're starting to land, I call upon the stewardess. And, of course, I'm trying to... The airplane is loud, and I'm trying to talk to the stewardess. And, you know, the girl, female, is only sitting right across from us and across the aisle and up one seat. And is sees me talking to the stewardess, so she's, you know, looking and paying attention to me, but I could care less. So I'm telling the stewardess that you know as an investigator as a social worker as a crisis counselor uh, we as i working as a crisis counselor mm-hmm. and man they reported this this is sending up too many red flags this needs something needs to be done we cannot la- have this plane land everyone get off this plane and this female takes these two kids and goes off i know something isn't right i know i know i know I, you know, and maybe I'm wrong, but in my heart and soul, I felt I was right. And to this day, I feel it was right. And I will tell you all, this was several years ago. I can't remember what year it was, but it's been several years ago. So, and it's still very fresh in my mind. So I make some phone calls while we're landing, you know, as the plane landed, I've informed the stewardess. The stewardess finally has taken me serious because, like, she's like, I don't know what to do. I've never been, you know, I've never encountered something like this. So they had to do a lot of talking in between stewardess and pilots and do their little thing. Long story short, the plane, when we landed the plane, the plane got to, they would not let anybody off the plane until security arrived at the at the gate to escort all of us and so they had to, i actually come onto the plane escort this mother oh let's go back real quick before we escort be escorted off the plane prior to us landing the woman had to give the baby back to its mother now the baby had just woken up was cooing and cowing or had not woken up I can't remember because the baby was still being quiet so what me the stranger hands the baby back to the mama and guess what happens Got you all the baby starts screaming again the baby continues to scream the whole time okay the baby never stopped screaming I'm like what the fuck so anyway, we land, security's at the gate, we we can't get off, nobody can get off the plane until security gets actually onto the plane to escort all of us off. She didn't want to get off, we, but we all got off the plane, we had passengers cursing at us, yelling about us because we were delaying them getting off the plane. But I was damned that we were going to allow this female to leave this airplane and airport with these two babies, because I I felt like there was something wrong. A, I, I know child abuse would have been hard to prove. I know child neglect would have been hard to prove, but it was enough of a red flag. And as a mandated reporter, I felt like I had to take action and make sure that it was reported and taken care of. And I didn't know how else to do it, but because I'm on an airplane and I can't wait for an investigator to get there because I don't have any information. So how am I going to call a hotline? I need the police involved. I can't wait to get off the plane to get the police involved because they'll be gone. So luckily, we got security involved, blah, blah, blah. We got off the plane. They det- you know they take the mom and the li- the little girl is pushing the baby in the stroller the baby's still crying now it's still at this point we're off the plane the baby's still crying the little girl this little girl is trying to take care of this little baby mom is talking with the police The I'm on the phone with child abuse investigation hotline, trying to make a hotline, trying to get it all set up that they would, you know, they get somebody up there to the airport, ASAP, because we can't let this girl leave the airport with this baby. The police are police were giving me pushback. The lieutenant got involved, but the police officer came up to me. This is a big man. And I'm a little girl. I'm only five foot. Uh, and, you know, I'm average size, you know, little girl, petite little thing. This dude's big dude, talking about, what, ma'am, what do you want us to do? What do you expect us to do? I'm like, sir, are you not listening to my concerns? I'm like... He's like, ma'am, there is nothing wrong for you to put a baby on the floor of an airplane. He's like, you're telling me that's child abuse. He's like, I me, I've done that before. I said, sir, yes, it is child abuse to put a child on the floor. It is inappropriate. You do not do that. So him and I went back and forth. The lieutenant got involved. Long story short, she was detained. I they she was being taken to the security offices there at the police department at the airport. Prior to us even getting out of the airport, the investigator was on the phone talking to me. I was giving her a detailed report of what I saw. Another thing that I need to mention is we were very late getting to the baggage claim because we had to sit there and you know, they finally disembarked, you know, this deplaned everybody while we were talking with the police so by the time we got down to the luggage claim it was late she had told the young lady had told the police that she was her grandpa was picking her up at the airport and he was waiting for waiting for her at the baggage claim you want to say something Seth?
0: well that's an absolute lie so why don't you keep going
1: So I was like, okay, her grandpa, you know, I was like, maybe her grandpa is, I wasn't even thinking about it when, you know, the police told me that her grandpa was picking her up at the, you know, down there baggage claim. So, but now we're, as I said, we're getting down to baggage claim late. There's nobody down there. Okay. It is like almost ghost town. But as we're walking down there, there is two young guys. Inside the baggage claim area where visitors can, you know, people who are not boarding planes, they can come in to the airport and hang out. There were two young guys sitting there waiting for somebody by the baggage claim for where our flight came in. So that took another red flag to me. I was like, oh, my God, this lady maybe stole this baby. Maybe this girl is trying to sex traffic this baby. Maybe this girl is giving this baby, training this baby for drugs. Those are the things that were going through my head because I just knew something was not right. I don't know. I know it would be hard to prove abuse or neglect on a case like this as a mandate reporter, as a mother, as a female, as a social worker, as a crisis counselor, I could not, in my head, not make sure that this child situation was looked at. So, you know, were those two guys there for her? I don't know. But it just seemed kind of odd. And so... As we're walking out of the airport, I was talking to the investigator who was on her way up there to do an investigation. I never found out the outcome, but I know that I did the right thing. And again, like I said, to till this day, I have not forgotten. And again, this was several years ago when this happened. So
0: I really don't want to say that it was a few years ago because it feels like it was last year. But that couldn't have been last year because it was COVID. It was the year before that, right? Yeah, 19. 19. Anyhow, it was an incredible trip, and it ended with quite the crescendo of events. But I think it really brought home why we needed the vacation that we took. We really enjoyed that trip. And I think hearing how this ended really highlights the importance of what Anne does, And in essence, what I do. And I I think it really provides some context as we wrap up this month's series and focus on child abuse. Since I do have an experienced child abuse investigator and um, lead expert outreach clinician, someone I very much look up to as we end this month and and we wrap up this series, since I do have you in the room, what type of... I'm going to give you the last word. What type of advice or um, things you would offer to people from your perspective as a clinician?
1: Main thing that I say is do this job if you love the job. If you love to investigate it feels like second nature to you you have follow your gut just and even if you don't want to be an investigator if and with just and with with regards to child abuse in general as mandated reporters as social workers as counselors as any professional but even as somebody who's not a mandated reporter if you see something that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up it makes it it, it make it, it draws your attention and it's an ongoing i mean it's not just take, takes place for a second or it could even take for, place for a second but i always say follow your gut and only do this job if you love it because if you don't love it you're going to miss something And it takes certain individuals to do this job. You have to love helping others and you have to give it your all. But you have to also learn how to separate your job from your personal life. But again, if you love what you do, then follow your heart and your gut.
0: And now we have lots of listeners who are not mental health professionals, as we tailor this show both for the professional as well as individuals with their own uh, mental health concerns and struggles. Having been an investigator and now working on the mental health side of of our profession, what uh, what things would you have to say to survivors of child abuse? and then individuals who are still experiencing it
1: i always say it just takes one day at a time you just have to work through it and you have to learn to forgive you have you might you have to learn to put it away and just move forward and not let it define you and you just have to talk about it it could be 2 years from now it could be something that triggers it but it it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you or it hinders you, it makes you stronger. It makes you a survivor. You think about how your story can help the next person. You could help somebody else. You can empathize with somebody who's experienced what you've been experiencing. But don't ever feel like you cannot reach out and talk to someone, because there are plenty of people out here that will be willing to talk to you and help you and work through it, because that's the best thing for you.
0: And a couple things for those who are currently in this type of situation. One, I want you to know that you are not alone. Please reach out for help and know that there are resources to help you get out of these abusive situations. But reach out to a licensed mental health professional who can help. And if you're looking for resources to help get that support, please check out our website, which is mental-podcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Uh, We have a page on there as well as a, a Facebook group, which we're continuing to try to keep active. And if you're interested, we will begin putting out newsletters, most likely starting in May. You can sign up for that on the website. If you have suggestions, comments, or things that you would like us to share on the next episode of Mental, reach out to our hotline, which is 314-690-5005. And looking into our next series, which will begin in May, we are going to be discussing religious trauma syndrome. Can't wait to talk to you all next week.